Witness history at Roland Garros, where old rivalries meet new talent on the clay battleground. Tennis Channel Plus is your place to watch. Stream every court from your phone or smart TV live in HD. Experience three weeks of unparalleled access as the world's top players in tennis face off to see if the veterans maintain their dominance or if a fresh face rises to challenge them. Daily live coverage begins Monday, May 20th. Stream it now with Tennis Channel Plus to be there when it happens. Welcome to Three, a show about Federer, Nadal, and Djokovic and part of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. I'm Gil Gross with Joel Drucker and Amy Lundy, and today we are celebrating our 100th episode. It is not our 100th episode, but uh, it, it came during Wimbledon. We had real important business to take care of. And uh, now we are going to take our time to uh, appreciate uh, 100 episodes in our first ever Q&A format. Uh, it has been, let me just start by saying it has been a pleasure doing this show with, uh, with you guys, Joel and Amy. It's been incredible. And I, I figured we, we should let everyone know kind of how this started. I think because most people joined in at, at some point along the journey. Amy, I had you on my show. It was, it was during the pandemic pause where I was talking about matches from the past. And we did the Serena versus Kleister's semifinal at the US Open. Mm -hmm. And then you came to me a couple weeks later with this idea, right? Right. So just to take it back a, a little bit, um, Joel and I met at an event called Tennis Congress, which I've done some video work for. And it's an event for passionate adult amateur players. And we just hit it off immediately and, and would talk on the phone about tennis for hours and hours and hours. And I wanted to go back and read, you know, dozens of Joel's pieces that he'd done. And I ended up reading his most recent book and just like instant friendship. And we decided that we wanted to do a podcast. Well, we started just like messing around kind of in beta with something called crosses and mains. And with Joel and I, it just wasn't working because we would talk on the phone for a couple of hours and then we would hit record and we would kind of like be confused about what was on the phone and our conversations were drifting and branching and it really the podcast did not have focus. So then um, we knew we needed a third. We, we needed someone who could direct traffic, but also um, could bring the knowledge and the insights like, like you can. And then the idea to do something on Federer, Nadal, and Djokovic um, came up because I really just wanted to do something that people cared about. And the whole reason that I used to be a general assignment sportscaster and I wanted to do tennis because of these three players. I wanted to just focus specifically on these three. And, and these guys drew me in and it was something that nobody else was doing. That's pretty darn accurate and thoughtful. And just to add without uh, being too superfluous, uh, to go back even to meeting at the Tennis Congress, Amy and I had talked about podcast, and I was thinking of doing one myself, and Amy was wanting to do one, and I'm, since I'm a tennis person, I wanted to do it myself. I wanted to do it as a solo. <laughs> 
And most of my life as a writer, a lot of my things are very much kind of my own kind of show. I mean, I write for people, but I like, I like being my own person. And Amy kind of uh, kicked my butt and said, hey, do it as, we'll do it as part of a team. And she explained the things that she and I could each bring. And again, as Amy pointed out, we were kind of uh, stumbling a little bit, unsure how to do it. And then we found you, Gil, and you're like the, you're like the glue and you helped make it all happen. So it's been great. It has been great working with both of you. I think uh, chatting with both of you, we bring some really neat different things to it all, our respective backgrounds. And it's uh, been really great. Thanks. And yeah, so Joel, you went from singles to doubles to now Canadian doubles. Oh, this is like a, <laughs> this is the, the workout. This is the two-on-one workout, like the famous two people in the net, make the guy run, right? We're suffering, you know, two at the baseline, one at the net. That's yeah. right. That's right. And right. and this is no disrespect to Canadians, but that is the one game that I will not play is Canadian doubles. Whenever I have three on a tennis court because somebody's dropped out or something, I insist that we play rotating singles points. So <laughs> it's... <laughs> I do rotating singles points. However, you can do, there's some, you know, you can do the drill. You can do the two at the net, two yes. at the net volleying. But mostly, yeah, I know you mean. I wonder, we should look up, how did that get called Canadian doubles? Is that like Canadian bacon or something? <laughs> anyway, anyway, it's great. And so we've got a nice team and how great that the people who, who listen and watch our show offer us a lot of comments and a lot of energy around these three yeah. guys and their tennis. So it's great. Well, we, uh, we rarely talk about ourselves, but I, I'm sure that most, uh, a lot of you guys will enjoy hearing how this all came about. Now let's get to the questions, big three focused, and um, unfortunately couldn't get to them all, but I, I picked out a few, and thank you to everyone who commented, which was like over 75 of you guys, which was amazing. Uh, we start with Milan. Uh, when, when you, when you three all reflect on the trajectory of the big three individually, respectively, what were, was the key pivot points or moments for each goat's tennis journey for each of you, where you went, wow, this guy is special or is going to be really, really special. Wow. Okay. I can think of a couple as a start. And by the way, to the audience, Amy and I don't know these questions. So we'd have no idea as Gil's bringing them to us. So this is right off our head. Um, I was at the Sampras Federer match at Wimbledon 2001. And I'd heard and I'd, maybe I'd watched Federer on TV. And that was really impressive just to see Roger. It didn't, it didn't mean, yeah, this guy's going to win 20 majors as much as this thing. This guy's got some real sweet skill here. And it's really neat to see. Um, 2007. It's always great when we see these guys in person. I saw Novak when he won Miami, his first Tennis Masters 1000 title. And he had, was still 19. He was a teenager. And I watched him when he beat uh, player um, uh, Kanyas. You remember Kanyas, Gil, your kind of player. Very formidable Argentine, very fit. And had beaten Federer in that tournament. And Novak beat him in straight sets in a best of five final. So those were two. And, and then Nadal, it was TV before. I, oh, wait, no. Yeah, I saw Nadal beat Federer in Miami on TV. So when he beat him the first time in 2004, and that was impressive for me about, those are early pivot moments for those three. 
First of all, Milan, thank you. <laughs> um, you're one of my favorite commenters. I, I always look for your, your comments. And really, I just want to thank all of our, our listeners and viewers. Um, your comments and, and just the fact that you do listen and watch just means the world to me. Um, let's see. I'll start with Nadal. And I'm sorry to say I don't remember what year it was, but it was extremely early in his career. He had not won any majors and I was just a young local TV news, TV sports reporter um, in Connecticut, where I live. And he, Nadal was playing James Blake, who was the hometown hero. And there was almost nobody on the, it was up at Yale University and they have like a center court and there was almost no one there. So I was permitted to go down and sit in the photographer's well so I could see the whole thing at eye level. And I just remember like one of the few um, fans in attendance yelling out to James Blake, you're losing to a guy who's wearing capri pants because this, is, <laughs> this was in Nadal's capri pant era. Um, and uh, it was stunning what I saw. I saw an incredible athlete with um, an amount of top spin that I had not seen in the sport of tennis up to that point. He just had a very different game. And even at that time, he was young and kind of, you wondered if he was kind of brash, but he had a countenance about him, which made me think he could go far. Um, for Federer, I think, you know, I kind of came of age during the Sampras era. So for a long time, and again, remember, I wasn't focused solely on tennis. I was covering basketball and baseball. Um, but I remember thinking that maybe Federer was just another um, Sampras. But when he won the French Open, to me, that was a pivotal point. And then for Djokovic, um, I mean, it, it's, it, it's nothing jumps out at me. It's, it's kind of like his game. It's just been over time. It just, it wears you down and it, it's hard to pinpoint any one thing. Um, but I will say that I think the marquee win of his career was the win over Federer at Wimbledon in 2019. And, and that to me will always stand out as his greatest, most pivotal moment. And I'm in such a different position in answering this question because I truly did begin to be a, a serious observer of tennis as I became old enough to be a serious observer of tennis while, you know, Federer and Nadal were already extraordinarily good. And uh, Novak, however, I do remember the transition. Uh, the transition from, oh, here's Djokovic, a guy who's very talented on the outside looking in, a, a contender, a threat. And then it was, no, he's one of them. He's, he's in there. And I, I think the 2010 U.S. Open semifinal, when he beat Roger, uh, was probably the moment where I remember watching and expecting Federer to win. You know, and, and again, not as a very, not as a diehard or a tennis intellectual, just expecting Federer to win and being like, oh, okay, uh, Djokovic is... Djokovic can do that. So that, that's kind of a moment that, that jumps out to me. Um, let's, go, let's go to the next one. It comes from Ali. Whose game style influenced both recreational and subsequent professional players the most out of the three? 
Uh, Ollie weighs in here. He says, for me, uh, for my part, I'd go with Rafa and how he kind of changed the way players interpret topspin, even if a large part of it was advancing racket technology. So which player uh, influenced the game the most, uh, both um, recreationally and professionally? And I'll, I'll just add before you guys weigh in, this is something that we talk so much about in the coverage of music, where it's not so much oh, this album was so enjoyable. It was incredible to listen to, but artists and music are also measured on how many people tried to copy them, how many people went off that sound and ran with it. So this question reminds me of a, of a music question, which is uh, about influence. So, okay, so carry on, Gil. I actually, I think Ali's on to something. When, right. I look at, when I look at men's tennis, and I, I go eeny, meeny, miny, mo on the top 100 and I pick a player. I think I see, you know, the biggest thing that I'm seeing right now is forehand centric, high margin aggression off the forehand wing, uh, using the weapon of extreme levels of topspin to achieve a state of, of safety and damage all in the same package from the baseline. That to me is a very prevailing style that we see up and down the rankings now. And I don't really think, now I think there's a lot of Novak Djokovic-like players, but, but I think that Nadal, that Nadal kind of heavy topspin thing is what I see most on the pro level. You're not, you're not, you haven't, you're not, I thought you were talking about Yvonne Lenzel. I thought you were talking about Andre Agassi. I mean, when I think of, that that model of playing of of Agassi maybe not as heavy topspin but the idea of the forehand as a as a major battering shot that sets up the tempo over the point but I don't know that's a good I think this question I think it's a great question that's still to be determined because they're still playing and so and and the players who are influenced by them are now should be are in their formative twelve year old state they're twelve years old. You know, we, that's, that they're the ones who are taking them in. It's like the, it's like when the younger players, because the contemporaries aren't going to change their game. You know, it's not, I'm not going to see, we're not going to see um, uh, Denis Shapovalov now start hitting um, Nadal forehand now that he's been playing with the pros. He has his kind of forehand, which is good. But, and gosh, and he's kind of an example in a way you talk about using the forehand. I don't know, what do you, I, I, I could talk more about this, but Amy, what do you think? I think, for me, the answer to the question is Roger Federer. I think, you know, we've talked about how we don't do GOAT debate on this show, but but a lot of the data points are, are pointing away from Roger as a lot of his records fall away to Djokovic and Nadal. But if you want to argue influence, I think a lot of Roger's strokes, particularly the serve and the forehand, um, were, became something that it was almost like perfection that we should all shoot for. Um, people would slow down to the frame and look at the tilt of his head. And they would look at, you know, which way his foot was pointing on the backhand volley and, um, they would look at his serve. I mean, God, his serve has been studied ad nauseum. Um, the, the different, the kick serve as well as the slice and how he, he places it with such pinpoint accuracy. 
Um, to me, Rogers had the greatest influence, maybe because Nadal's a lefty and he has an unconventional stroke and Novak is still influencing. And it's interesting. And I think I brought this up before that I heard Riley Opelka on another podcast saying that the, the, forehands now are getting more linear again they're not so topspin heavy and and what he's seen is a change within like the last five years so who knows maybe that's Novak's influence I think I like what you said about Federer I think and also when we talk about influence maybe Federer as the notion of the wire-to-wire brilliant career of care and maintenance and Novak too so that's part of the influence of how you manage your body Nadal on how you go about competing is somewhat influential, but you know, how you, how you assess influence is interesting. I think among uh, recreational players, the emulation and almost fetishization of Feder is interesting. Like the things you pointed out in the looking yeah. at the ball, the strokes. However, when I look at fingerprints on contemporary tennis and what I would tell juniors and how I see the pro game, it's we're living in the Novak world. I mean, and you see players like, Nishikori and GoFan and uh, Mackie McDonald and kind of the once upon a time there was a, a we were living in a world of let's say a quality serve and volley or body serves make the first volley pretty you know meat and potatoes that way so it's more like the way of Novak of you know the two-hander that uh, that's that's kind of the rock um, and and the forehand that once the more the forehand improves the better the results become and kind of the craftsmanship I mean if I was of our three, if you took a 11 year old and said, here's the guy, this is the game you, this is kind of the, em- the game to emulate. It's, it's probably closer to Novak than Roger. You want it? You want it? You like Roger? Good. You got to be patient. It's going to take a while to put all those parts and pieces together. Mm-hmm. People are enamored. That's the dynamic. That's so fascinating. People are most enamored with how Roger plays. I agree with that. And, and Amy, you make the point about all the slow motion YouTube videos uh, that you can find. Yeah. But is that to their detriment? Uh, I, I grew up um, at, at a certain point in my junior playing career, very early on, I wanted to play like Roger and I wore Nike polos and swung a Wilson racket. I actually wanted to play like him because it was beautiful. I realized at a certain point that I can't and that that ended that I no longer wanted to play like Roger because uh, I realized that it's not how I'm going to be best. So it's interesting. Well, this gets to a lot of things about the development cycle. You know, it's kind of funny. Like I've talked to a, Roger is the most aspirational. No one has generated more swooning in the history of tennis than Roger Federer right? It's just a pure aesthetic, the Barishnikov, the movements. But I was talking to a parent once. They said, Roger, he's such a genius. How can you begin to emulate him? I said, you know, I'm no genius, but I can hit a slice backhand and a topspin backhand in the same rally. I can hit a drop shot approach. Now, the question with Roger to do it as well, there's a steeper learning curve than to do what Novak does as well. An 11-year-old can come out of the box and kind of like, okay, Novak, you know, because Novak is very very studied and I'm going to be consistent. I'm going to be, I'm not going to, I'm going to be pretty airtight. And it allows him, it's like the way we've talked about how he wins tiebreakers. But I I don't know. It's a great, it's a wonderful question. It's something you could talk about forever. It is. It is a very good question. Thank you, Ollie. Uh, This next one comes from uh, racket talk. I'm going to shorten it. Essentially 
Um, they want to know who is the best interview out of the three. Who do we enjoy listening most to in the interview settings? Obviously, we can add some nuance to that uh, in terms of what situation is best for each. Amy, um, if if uh, who do you take the most enjoyment out of listening to uh, interviews from? Witness history at Roland Garros, where old rivalries meet new talent on the clay battleground. Tennis Channel Plus is your place to watch. Stream every court from your phone or smart TV live in HD. Experience three weeks of unparalleled access as the world's top players in tennis face off to see if the veterans maintain their dominance or if a fresh face rises to challenge them. Daily live coverage begins Monday, May 20th. Stream it now with Tennis Channel Plus to be there when it happens. I have to say, again, it's Roger, but I'm going to put a little caveat by that. Um, Roger knows how to play the game. He knows how to look reporters in the eye and to come up with really thoughtful uh, answers where reporters will come away feeling really good about the experience of having interviewed Roger and want to write something positive about him. <laughs> I'm just being honest. I call it like I see it. I mean, look, we're only human beings, you know. Rafa is a little bit more guarded. Um, I have found him to be. Uh, I, although recently I've noticed that you know, he speaks his mind a little bit more in the pandemic and post-pandemic era. But just generally speaking, he doesn't seem to want to give away too much in an interview. And I feel like there's a whole personal life, a whole other side of Rafa that nobody has ever even come close to getting to the bottom of. And, and I've seen the 60 Minutes interview where I think it was Steve Croft went out to Mallorca and, and that was good. I mean, that was really good. And yet I still don't feel like I totally know the man. Um, Novak, now this is where the asterisk and the caveat, um, in some interviews, he's been extremely close to the vest and tight, and he's not going to give you anything. In others, I think he's actually maybe the most honest and open. And um, I also think there's some real gems that we don't know about Novak, but they might be easier to get to someday. Wow, that's I'd almost just say ditto for that answer. And then I would just add, I thought to myself, hmm, down the road, who would I want to interview most to get to, to learn more from, to learn more from, not just to get things. And I think that would be Novak at this stage of their evolution. I think Nadal has pretty much figured out what he can do and not do. And it's kind of like, hey, I, I, I speak plenty loud on the court, take that. And that's fine. And it's going to be okay. And Roger, it's like, yeah, you're great. I ha and it's great. I I've had a number of very engaging experiences with him and I kind of know what they're going to be. I think, I think Novak has more, more to be revealed. There will get be more to be revealed in Novak. So that makes his future interviews more exciting. So my answer would depend on the situation. I, I, I think that it's tough to get stuff out of Rafa. It's a little bit harder. Um, in a funny situation, lighthearted, Roger, I think he does humor best. He's got, I think, a real knack for uh, for being lighthearted and funny. If it's a serious situation, 
I'm going to go Novak. I think he's most willing to just open up and, and give his unfiltered thoughts on something that has gravity and weight and he'll be introspective and he'll get deep. Uh, so, so that's, for me, it's funny, Roger, serious, Novak. Um, to answer the question further, one thing about interviews overall, and I never let what tennis players say shape more than 49% of what I think about them. To me, what they do inside the lines is 51% or more. There was a player once, and one of my journalistic colleagues says, this guy plays good tennis, he's got nothing to say. It wasn't one of the three, by the way, it was someone else. And I said, you want to watch sports or you want to go interview a senator? You know, I'm not looking for think people to say things. They say it. And the challenge, the real challenge is to understand what they're saying with their rackets and study that. And that's why I think, I think what's fun about the show is we like, to, we talk to coaches, we study the game and that informs our ability to understand what they're doing, how they're speaking with their racket. Yeah. I think that's a good approach. Um, Next one is from Jose. You guys probably get asked this a lot, but if only one of the big three existed during their era, would it be possible for him to have over 30 majors without the competition from the other two? Amy, what do you think? Wow. Um, very profound hypothetical there, Jose. <laughs> um, I, I, I'm going to say something like, since it's such a hypothetical, I'm just going to allow my suspend reality and just allow myself to go there. I think what might've happened is that that one player might have won so much that he retired earlier. I think it was having the other two there that kept these guys going for so long, um, has kept them going for so long. So um, I don't know if they actually would have, he actually would have uh, reached 30. He may have stopped short of that. The other fun way to add on to this question, which this hypothetical question, which one is absent? So, who, so if it's Rafa, who gets all these Roland Garros goodies, right? If it's, you know, particularly Rafa, because no one has more of one of them than Rafa. So let's absent Rafa. Two of them are absent though in this hypothetical. Keep that in mind. I'm, oh, 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 two. Okay. So which two are absent? Yeah. So only one of them. It's, it's if only one of them was around, would they get to 30? Wow. Kind of like we're in science fiction. This is really kind of yeah. interesting. Yeah. Like they never like, and, and does Federer therefore never have to improve his backhand because he has no Nadal. So <laughs> right. right. does what happens? Does this Novak, does Guillermo Korea, after losing that 04 French from match point or two sets to live up, does he come back and he claims the French that he never got? And then does he beat Federer in the 08 final? Does, you know what I mean? It's like, does Robin Soderling, what of Robin Soderling who lost finals two straight years to both of them? What is, does he win both of them now? I mean, what, uh, every, all these, you know, it's, 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 yeah. So I don't know. It's kind of, you could do a whole board game on it. <laughs> all right. I mean, again, yeah, it's very hypothetical. I think Amy's right. Uh, I don't think, look, tennis is a, this, this is hard. Like being out there, you need the fire to burn. You need a motivation. Right. I don't think anyone is going to be able to just run up the score and just keep going after, right? Like I, I agree. I think they've all pushed each other and I don't think that it's, 
I really don't think that any of them would have the fruitful and long careers that they have had, really, if the others didn't exist. So if Federer is around, does Rarinka, what comes of him? Where does he, does he not then get to play the 08 Olympics with Federer and be in Roger's shadow, which is actually helpful, even though it's not helpful. So what comes of Rarinka or, or, or Tip Sarovich? You know, just, I'm just playing all these models through. You know, is David Ferrer now the great, the king of clay? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, I mean, it's just yeah. so, it's just so, it, it's fun. And yeah, and the thing about how they push each other, but someone else would have been pushing them too. Someone else would have been pushing that one, maybe as well. I don't know. What, what comes of Nalbandian? Nalbandian well, that's, that's the Federer thing. Finishes. I mean, nobody, nobody could successfully push Federer when he was in his era of dominance. So we've seen what it looks like when you know in that short span you could say we did see what it looks like for only one but Federer was chasing Sampras at that time right yeah but he what, was being, what happens he, when you're not chasing anything but whoa 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 his ankle was being grabbed by Nadal three months a year during those years starting in okay the right. 04 Miami was a jolt hey this guy's here Okay, then and then the 05. Remember, Federer loses the Australian Open semi in 05 to Safin, uh, loses the Nadal semi. I mean, yeah, he's he's winning two, three slams a year. Don't get me wrong, but he's aware that he's you know that that became you sometimes. I remember reading, how could he be the best of all time if he's not the best of his era and Clay and Rafa? Okay, great point. Uh, this one is from Alex. Uh, what is the best single shot possessed by one of the big three? To clarify the question, it's not surface or time period specific, and it's just the individual shot, not how it fits into the player's whole game. I actually think the best way, if I can ask the same question in a different way, is uh, if, if you are a player, um, which shot would you want to have? Or if you had like a tennis playing child, which shot would you like to bless them with? I think you had that one. Oh, go ahead, Amy. I think I want, it's so tough. Like, do I want Roger's serve or, or his forehand? I think I want his serve. Um, so I want Roger's serve. I want Nadal's. No, no, you only get one. Oh, I only get one. Yeah, you oh, literally get that's one. that's not fair. Oh, oh. <laughs> um, yeah, if, it, if we're just talking about strokes, because um, there are other elements to to Novak and Rafa that are outside of just strokes. So if we're just talking about strokes, then I, you know what, I think I'm going to pick Rogers forehand. Well, and that fits into the other way to answer this question is which shot is the single best that is most kind of left its thumbprint, not even a fingerprint on tennis in a big way. That's exactly. the other way. And I think, I think I'd have to say each of the, I'm, I'm left-handed. So I guess it would be like Nadal's forehand. But mm -hmm. I wouldn't mind Federer's forehand. I mean, those are those are to me the two the two mega shots that the three like if you just took them out and said, okay, these are the shots that have left their mark on the game in big ways. It's their respective forehands. Now, if I want if I for the learning for the growing player, say God, you could do pretty well with that Novak backhand. That would carry you a big yeah, and, and I would say like read every book that Novak has written on nutrition, which I actually, I think he's only written one book on nutrition. 
do that, um, stretch like he does, become like Gumby with his flexibility. And, you know, there's so many other things that I would take from him and his game that aren't strokes necessarily. Although I would love his forehand too. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think that's totally fair. I'm, for me, it, I agree. I think it's one of the, it's either the candidates are the Federer serve, the Federer forehand or the Nadal forehand. And I, I lean Nadal forehand, but a part of me, a part of me wonders if there's a little bit of 2010s bias there, because I know that in the 2000s, it was the Federer forehand generally regarded as the better forehand between the two. Well, Nadal, Nadal, if you look at their arcs, these are great questions. So we should, we could do this more often. Mm -hmm. because this kind of opens up a, the tuna fish can yeah. to other ways of like exploring yeah. these guys. And Nadal's, Nadal is viewed in sort of the, <clears throat> the specialist who blossomed through oh, even as the 08 Wimbledon, the 09 Australian, the career slam of 2010. He's still seen as kind of an heir to Federer, right? Because Roger is still reigning as the, and Roger's chasing Sampras and Roger has more slams and he, <clears throat> he attains the career slam in 09. So there's this Roger hegemony of which Rafa is, and Rafa is willingly playing that part too. How many times have we had Rafa say, Roger's better than me. He's great. Oh, I'm just, oh, yes. But now, now over the last 12 years, the tallies and the years and all that stuff have, have made it different. From Andre, um, how active do you think the big three will be in retirement? Some, like Jordan, are everywhere because of their brands and personality. Others are more discreet or, like Brady, are still active. And more interestingly, how do, you, uh, how do you see the relationship between Nadal and Djokovic afterwards, since this one seems to be the most emotionally charged relationship, which I think is debatable. But let's start with, uh, this is an interesting question. What do we see our three doing after tennis? Um, are there any, Joel, that you feel strongly about that you, that you feel pretty confident on or no? Active in the world or also active in tennis. I think active in tennis. I actually think, uh, I don't know why I thought of this. I think Novak wants to continue to play some kind of leadership role in aspect of the tennis. I could see him wanting to become the Serbian Davis Cup captain. I could see him doing stuff as Rafa has in some academy. I and mean, Rafa's already has his academy, so he's already kind of planted a seed for that. And you know, more than a seed, it, it exists. Um, so I think... I think the one who's going to be more visible is going to be Novak in a way. I think that's what I think. I think the, the fact that you brought up Michael Jordan is really good because I think Roger could follow that template to a T. Uh, he's got his ons and his other business interests and he's, you know, a great ambassador for this sport, just like Michael Jordan is for basketball. So I could very much see that. I think Nadal would be the one that would retreat a little bit more into family life. Maybe not to the extent that Sampras has where like you just never see the guy anymore. But, um, you know, in he's a homebody in Spain, you know, maybe raising his kids, working at his academy, but not the big visibility that maybe Roger would have in business. And then I see Novak 
quite frankly, potentially going into politics in some way. He does seem to be the most interested in cha making change for the better in terms of world issues such as climate. That I know that's a big one for him. So um, I could see him, you know, getting involved in, in big issues like with the United Nations or something like that, even bigger than and larger than tennis. I think um, I think Novak is by far the most likely to coach. And uh, I've I've seen that like I, you know, Olga Danilovic is a, a young Serbian player, big, tall lefty who uh, he seems to offer guidance to at will, like all the time. And I just, uh, I feel like he enjoys that role. And I, I do think he'll, he'll savor continuing to be around tennis where I kind of agree, like Roger, we're getting a taste of, yes, the family life, you know, the, the kids, the privacy, the business ventures. And then with Rafa, you ask him what he likes. He says, I like boats, fishing and golf. And uh, I, none of those involve the public sphere. One of them isn't even on land. So <laughs> uh, that's how I see, uh, that's how I see that shaking out. I, I like that. I think I see, you know, Federer's this global statesman who'll have his corporate partnerships and the labor cups will have his across the board. I think Nadal, I don't think, I think Nadal doesn't want to think of himself as being a boss, a, a leader coach. You know, it's like, that's not really his way. He'll, the academy, yes the family, the kind of act local kind of thing. And I think Novak, yeah, I think I've, I see Novak as more of that statesman. I think Serbian players, other players from the world, you know, I'm always, I'm impressed by the, uh, the global aspects of Novak. You know, you see him speaking Italian because he spent there. He has other parts in other parts of Europe and the, and the world. And I think that's pretty neat. So I, and I could see him being the segue because he is by far a more important part of his country than the others who are to theirs. I mean, Federer is a, is a cherished part of Switzerland, but the whole connection of Novak to Serbia and what that means to him is very powerful from that Davis Cup win. Arguably, we could say the Davis Cup win in 2010 was the real trigger that kicked into his great years. That along with the earlier win over Federer at the US Open, but kind of his whole sense of himself. Yeah, yeah, I agree with that. And, and um, I... I... There, there have been a, a lot of, there's been a lot of pointing to that Davis cup as the turning point because that incredible 2011 season was directly preceded by it. Last one here from Prabesh. I know Federer has been surpassed by both Nadal and Djokovic, but do you believe that for Federer, it was more about chasing Sampras and maybe he failed to keep an eye behind him and became complacent. Does having a target ahead make you more competitive as a chaser than somebody who is a runaway leader and has confidence? Or is it simply not true that Federer always felt the threat of Nadal in the beginning and never took the major count too lightly? We've touched on these themes already with the question about would, would either of them got, uh, have gotten a 30 slams? The question of being the chaser versus being the chased. Joel, what do you think of this one? I don't think Federer got. I don't think. I don't think people get complacent about winning, and I don't think people live their career for slam count tallies. And I don't think Federer, was, when he won Wimbledon in 03, was thinking, "How soon am I going to have catch Pete at 14?" I think he was thinking, yeah. "Get this one, get two, now get three, get the U.S. Open, get this, get that," and things just become. And then maybe when you get within, 
two or three, it'd be like, oh, that's kind of interesting. Yeah, I'd like to pass him now. So I think that was it for Roger. And look, remember, he's five years older than Nadal, which makes him six years older than Novak. And that is big, big in tennis. I think Joel nailed it. I, I don't think that these guys have really thought too much about slam tally. Maybe in their quieter moments, the thought crosses their mind. But part of the greatness of these three guys and what is absolutely required in tennis is focus, whether it be focus on the point, the game, the set, the match, or the tournament that you're playing. And I, I don't think that any of them have ever allowed these questions to shake their focus, which is probably why they've been able to succeed. Yeah, I, I think com complacency, does, you know, would never enter the equation here. Uh, I do think in any sport or in any game, it's, uh, it's certainly not an advantage to go first. Uh, it's better to have a target and attempt to chase it. And, and we can get into, you know, that's not just about numbers of titles. This is about, as we've talked about all the time, play styles and what is, what is Roger doing on the court and what do I need to do to, um, to defend against that or attack said weakness, right? So I do think, and I'll just give an analogy, right? But even in a sport as simplistic as, let's say, track and field, um, if you have a time to beat, that's better. That's an advantage. If you have a time to beat versus go as fast as you can. Uh, so it's definitely an interesting wrinkle. I think the fact that Federer had that head start, he had that era of dominance and, you know, there's, there's two schools of thought. There's Ro Roger got to play without, without the peak Rafa Novak. So that's an advantage. Well, wait, what, wait a second. It's not so cut and dry. Roger didn't have that that uh, development with uh, those targets in front of him that I think, especially for Novak, really drove him forward. So I don't think it's cut and dry like that. And I think it's an interesting dynamic. Well, and remember, you know, Novak, it was vivid. He spent three years at number three, three, four years at number three, and it was clear. And so those are the obstacles in front of him. And that's where you give the advantage, just like Lendl had his times. You know, Lendl had... Connors and McEnroe and he hired a lefty coach okay so he's aware you're, you're that high up the mountain but when you're at another stage of the mountain you know a track meet is not a career right a career is a whole other thing of of basically I think this I think sometimes we look at the sport and the records from this Olympian view of of the top in these resumes and the it's called win tomorrow's match it's mm -hmm. called get ready for next month's tournament it's not called Yes, three weeks from now, I'll come to the U.S. Open. This will be my, my, my 32nd straight major. And I have this. I mean, of course, Roger was aware when he was winning consecutive slams. Oh, yes, it would be nice to win it four years in a row. Okay, okay, practice tomorrow with Burdick. That's tomorrow. And then the day after that, I'm going to practice with uh, David Ferrer. And what's the draw? And how's the weather? And what are my strings? I mean, the, thing, the, the things that occupy the minds of the player preparing are so much different than the stuff we little hobgoblins get ourselves <laughs> engaged by. So different. Well said, good thing to keep in mind. And uh, what a pleasure this was. Thank you to everyone who commented, whether or not we got to it, um, it was really great to see. And also just in general, as Amy said at the beginning, 
Uh, we really appreciate uh, the comments that are left all the time that we don't answer um, on videos. A hundred episodes, it has been fantastic. Uh, thank you to the viewers, Joel and Amy, thank you to you guys. Um, I'm sure the feeling is mutual of uh, how great this has been and it will continue. Uh, North American hardcore swing around the corner and uh, we look forward to that. That'll do it for this episode of three. Remember, we're available on all podcast platforms. Remember uh, to leave a rating and a review on Apple. And if you are watching on YouTube, like, comment, and subscribe. We will see you next time on the next episode of Three.